Hey everyone, I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University. And I'm Roger, a student at King's College London. And, and this, this is That Many Podcast. Podcast. In this episode, we spoke to Dr. Donna Shlela, the United States Secretary of Health and Human Services under President Bill Clinton, and more recently, a Congresswoman in the U.S. House of Representatives. In this podcast, we discussed her experience managing three universities and their healthcare systems, her proudest accomplishments during her time in federal service, and how Democrats and Republicans can find common ground in healthcare reform. Today's show is perfect for anyone excited about health policy and shaping the future of healthcare. So, without further ado, let's have a listen. Hi, Dr. Shalila. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us. So we normally start the podcast by asking the question, why did you decide to get involved with healthcare? Well, um, I didn't actually make a conscious decision. Um, I acquired jobs in which I was responsible for large healthcare systems, starting with uh, the presidency of Hunter College in New York, where our, there was a nursing school, Allied Health Sciences, and we had a long-standing relationship uh, with a health policy related to the elderly through the Brookdale Center at Mount Sinai. And after that, I went to the University of Wisconsin where, as chancellor, where I ran a very large health system with lots of hospitals and doctors and a medical school and a nursing school and everything else that comes with that. That's really interesting. So could you tell me a little bit more about that experience running that large health system? What were your responsibilities? What did you learn from that experience? Well, the heads of the hospitals reported to me, the dean of the medical school reported to me. So I learned a lot. Um, and, and of course, we had world-class scientists in the agriculture school that had NIH grants. And during that time, I was re appointed to the National Institutes of Health Directors Council, which is the advisory group to the National Institute of Health. And so I learned a lot about um, world-class science, biomedical science, uh, the NIH, the way HHS was organized, plus health systems, the delivery of health care, uh, the challenges of the underserved, um, rural health care as part of my responsibilities running the entire University of Wisconsin at Madison. Before that, I had learned about uh, nursing in particular, but also the allied health sciences, and I uh, learned a lot about hospitals, working um, with hospitals that were particularly focused on the elderly. Certainly. I mean, it seems that you had a very broad-based background in healthcare, and I'm sure that really helped when you became secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS. You were secretary from 1993 to 2001 under President Clinton. And actually, this was really interesting to me, um, that you were the longest-serving HHS secretary in history. So I guess for our listeners at home, what exactly does the Department of Health and Human Services do? Uh, well, first of all, I got the appointment, I think, less because I had a healthcare background mm -hmm. and more because I had large-scale management experience. HHS is a huge agency. It encompasses the CDC, the FDA, the National Institutes of Health, the Public Health Service, welfare and child care and immigrant services, 
particularly settling refugees, for example, as we well have learned over the past few years. So it's a department. It also had Social Security at that time. So it was the largest of the cabinet agencies. And it was my management experience, the healthcare experience helped, and certainly my experience at NIH. But it was really my management experience that led to that position. HHS is a sprawling agency responsible for the federal role in healthcare. That includes the big programs focused on the poor, like Medicare, the Children's Health Insurance Plan, as well as the Indian Health Service, as well as the big program for the disabled and particularly for the elderly called Medicare. Those are multi-billion dollar programs in which the federal government provides um, the major resources for those programs. But in addition to that, the great public health agencies, the CDC, the FDA, are also within that department. So it's it's more like a major university than anything else with very strong agencies within it. It's really fascinating just to get to appreciate the size and magnitude of HHS. So, I mean, you mentioned that it is really a job of management above all. So I, I'm really curious to hear what lessons did you learn about effective leadership and effective management along this pathway? Well, um, I think that um, you have to understand the multiple cultures in an agency like uh, NIH. NIH is very different from FDA. FDA is a regulatory agency. And while it hires scientists, they're not bench scientists the way NIH uh, is responsible for. The CDC is more swashbuckling. They track (laughs) diseases Uh, and tell us a lot about infectious diseases, and they're our leader in that area. And the public health service has broader responsibilities for the general public health in the country. The Indian Health Service actually delivers health care through clinics on Indian reservations. So each of these agencies have their own culture and long histories of uh, of delivering grants or services or identifying diseases, um, and they're very different. In many ways, a background running a large, complex research university is quite similar. That's really, really interesting. And I'm curious, what accomplishments are you most proud of during your time as secretary of HHS? Well, we doubled the NIH budget, and we funded a new generation of biomedical scientists uh, we expanded health care for low-income workers' kids, the Children's Health Insurance Program, mm-hmm. which now covers about 8 million children in this country. And we improved and solved a lot of problems in the Medicare program, which service seniors as well as the disabled, the long-term disabled. So uh, we made enormous strides in improving the health care. In addition to that, with welfare reform and our efforts to reinvigorate the economy, American kids were healthier and wealthier by the time we left the administration. We also got every kid immunized. Uh, Only half the kids were getting immunized at the right time. You have to get shots before you're three. And um, we got that well over 90%. So we ran a huge immunization campaign. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about immunization. Right now, one of the biggest news stories is the COVID vaccine rollout. And in many ways, it's 
been um, attacked for being too slow, that it's been a mess, that many people have complained that the federal agencies have not been providing effective leadership. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that more generally. Well, it has been no rollout, just federal government sending uh, vaccines to the states. But there was no preparation by the federal government to get the states ready uh, for the acceptance of the vaccine. So it's been a mess. There also is no sense of urgency. That is, we should be inoculating people 24 hours, seven days a week, and getting all of the vaccines out as quickly as possible following the science. And uh, we're just not doing that in this country. The states were not ready, even though we gave them some resources and we've just given them more resources. They were focused on testing and they weren't preparing for the rollout of the vaccine. That is the mistake of the federal government. And more importantly, there's no sense of urgency in this country. I've been in India when they've inoculated 100 million people on a single day by being organized at every point in the health system. I mean, there are lots of people that can give shots in this country, including medical students, just not running a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week effort. Certainly. Teasing this out a little bit more, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on what the vaccine means, because I think that many people have heralded it as this silver bullet that's going to cure all the problems of COVID, right? and then we're going to be able to move on entirely, that no more masks, no more social distancing. What exactly does the vaccine mean to you? Well, I think it helps us control the the disease, the infections, um, but it doesn't mean that we're going to eliminate them forever, but it certainly will reduce the number of people that are getting sick and that are dying. And we need to get as many people vaccined as quickly as possible. Um, and uh, we're just not doing that. I mean, we hit, still don't have Publix and CVS and Walgreens and Rite Aid um, organized um, in this country. And we're putting too many restrictions. It was important to get first responders. But after that, um, my state at least uh, said those over 65, but we probably should have done 55. And we've spent too much time worried about those that don't want the vaccine. We can worry about that later, as far as I'm concerned. Right now, everybody that wants it ought to be able to get it. And that's just not true. Right now, my position would be you say you don't want the vaccine, then I say next. I talk to the next <laughs> right. person and shoot them up. Uh, I want to get back now to your career trajectory. I know that at the end of the Clinton administration, you then became president of the University of Miami. So we talked a little bit about how running a university is very similar to running this behemoth of a federal agency. I sort of want to talk to you a little bit about what that experience running the University of Miami was like, especially with regards to healthcare. Well, uh, Miami also has a huge healthcare system, uh, its own hospital, its doctors work at the great public hospital. I probably have 2,000 doctors that work at the University of Miami, some of them at Jackson Great Public Hospital and the others at uh, UMA, the university uh, hospital. So it was probably the easiest job I ever had, <laughs> it was the smallest institution I ever ran. And it was private, so there was more flexibility than running big public institutions. But healthcare has changed, and reimbursement and specialties and the overemphasis on specialties versus primary care is has just made it far more complicated, including the administration and the purchase of drugs, which has been a big issue, as you know, in health policy. 
I would love to talk a little bit more about that because, I mean, drug pricing is an enormous issue. And I mean, it's been an issue that we've been facing for quite some time. The memorable example is, of course, the story of insulin. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts on the issue more broadly and what you think might be paths moving forward. Well, there's only one way to get drug costs down, and that is for the U.S. government to negotiate price directly with the pharmaceutical companies based on volume. With volume, you ought to be able to get a better prices. And we have a bill, H.R. 3, that passed uh, the House of Representatives that basically gives permission for the Secretary of Health and Human Services to negotiate drug prices based on some kind of index of the wealthier countries around the world and what they pay for volume. And it also allows the private insurance companies to come into those negotiations. Yeah, it's very odd that the U.S. is one of the only countries that doesn't negotiate on volume. Um, Now, talking about your most recent public service, you served in Congress, where you were on the health subcommittee of the House Committee on Education and Labor. So I'm curious to understand what exactly did your role consist of? What exactly does the role of the subcommittee consist of? Well, we had jurisdiction over uh, ERISA, the private health insurance plan. Uh, We didn't have jurisdiction over Medicare and Medicaid. We had limited jurisdiction, but we were able to do some things on uh, surprise billing, for example. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, surprise billing is where you go into an operating room and your insurance company, you've been assured that the insurance covers all of uh, your costs. And it turns out that that the anesthesiologist is out of network. So you have to pay separately. Or you go into an emergency room and they call a neurosurgeon in or a neurologist in for a consult and they're not in network. And that means that it's outside of your insurance and you suddenly get this huge bill. The consumer ought to be protected. So we were able to pass a bill that that protects the consumer and leaves it to the insurance company and the hospital or the provider to negotiate a fair price. Gotcha. And I think that's something that's really interesting to me is that you have the unique perspective of shaping health policy, both from the executive and legislative branches of the government. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts on how the two compare and how the two must work together to improve healthcare for all Americans. Well, it requires pretty careful coordination because what you're interested in is delivering high quality health care at the lowest possible price. But you also want to keep the U.S. has the best specialists in the world and you want to keep them at the same time. So it's very tricky to run healthcare systems. So talking more generally now, one area of much academic interest in healthcare policy has been the failure of the Clinton health plan. Um, I'm curious, in your eyes, why did the Clinton plan ultimately fail? And secondly, what lessons can we take from that experience to help reform healthcare today? Well, I think we overreached a little bit. It's all about timing. Um, and if we had been able to hit the ground running the way the Obama administration, w- and they learned from the Clinton health plan, but in many ways, we created a complex plan that created a set of interest groups that didn't like some part of it. So in political science, we call that a negative coalition. And everybody that didn't like some part of it got together and opposed the plan, as opposed to getting more positive buy-in. What the Obama administration did was get more positive buy-in. They cut deals with 
the insurance companies, with the drug companies, with the pharmaceuticals, with the hospitals, every major part of the healthcare system to get them all to buy in. We ended up doing the impossible by doing it mostly in secret and not getting buy-in from the healthcare system. And as the president once said, who knew healthcare was so complicated? It's very complicated. <laughs> right, right. And when you move one part of it, it affects another part of it. So you have to be very careful and understand all the interests and the stakeholders in the system. Certainly. Uh, this concept of positive buy-in is fascinating. And I mean, you're right. I think that if there wasn't the Clinton experience that the Obama plan would have never never passed, it wouldn't have gone through. I mean, I think they learned a lot from that experience. I'm curious now, talking more generally, what do you see as the biggest issues facing healthcare today? Um, I would say there are two issues. Uh, one is out-of-pocket costs and um, for the consumers. And um, the other is the underserved. And so out-of-pocket costs, I would include drug costs uh, in that. Uh, but um, the other issue is people we haven't reached with the healthcare system. It simply is not designed yet to reach everyone. Certainly. I mean, that's one of the issues that has been magnified by the COVID pandemic. It has to be a priority moving forward, just um, making sure that healthcare for the underserved is on the top of our list. And I mean, you mentioned these two big issues, and they sort of beg the question that there needs to be efforts to reform it. But the reality, at least from my eyes and a lot of scholars' eyes, is that healthcare reform seems politically toxic. That Democrats, they suffered heavily in the 2010 midterms after Obamacare was passed. And um, despite the Republicans' drive to repeal and replace Obamacare, they have come up with no genuine replacement of their own. And um, perhaps that's because you cannot critique what is not there. So given that healthcare reform is so difficult uh, at least politically speaking, why do you think it's still worth fighting for? Well, because it has a lot to do with the economy and with the future of the country. It's pretty fundamental. Um, if you're unhealthy, you can't learn. If you're unhealthy, you can't work. If you're unhealthy, you can't create. Uh, and if there are large disparities in our country, um, economic justice and health justice cannot be prevail. So it's a fundamental right of being an American to have good health. And the role of government is to ensure that that's taking place. Certainly. And how do you think we build those coalitions to pass common sense health care reform? Well, it's very clear that Republicans now support Obamacare. Mm -hmm. uh, there may be a small core that still hopes they'll find a substitute, but um, a lot of Republicans have come out for Obamacare because there are huge numbers of people in their districts. In my congressional district, there are 100,000 people, the largest number of people enrolled in any congressional district in Obamacare. So um, Republicans and Democrats support Obamacare. What we need to do is make improvements in it. But Republicans also agree in supporting community health centers. And I think we've made a mistake concentrating so much on insur insurance and not focusing enough on the delivery of care and and uh, community health centers in particular. And I think simultaneously, as most Democrats do, that when we improve insurance and build bipartisan coalitions for that, we also improve um, community health centers because they are alternative ways for people to get good health care. 
the majority of people that now go to them have health insurance. They don't have access to primary care. Certainly, I think it gets at the care for the underserved point that you were highlighting earlier. And now, just trying to get your thoughts on the future, where do you think healthcare policy is headed in the next couple of decades? Well, I think we have to get control of costs, but not at uh, the expense of the patients. And I think we have to get control of the complexity of the system because Everybody just wants to be able to walk in and not have a very complex system that they have to navigate. So the system has to be better integrated, and we're experimenting with a lot of that in this country. Mm -hmm. One of the statistics that stands out is that the U.S. spends the most on healthcare of any country in the world, but of course, we don't have the best health outcomes. So, I mean, you're right. It is this essential tug of war between costs and making sure that the care is still high quality. I think that nearly wraps up the episode. But before we go, I wanted to ask you for your three pieces of advice for students interested in pursuing a career in health policy. Well, the first thing they have to do is they've got to learn about health policy every day. And whether they access a subscription to health affairs, which would give them that information, or to one of the websites, one of the other websites that covers, uh, for instance, Kaiser, the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation, has a free website and a news service that uh, gives you a newsletter every day that sort of summarizes all the issues in health policy. Then um, if students hear about a speaker, whether it's in their medical school and they're an undergraduate, they ought to go and listen to the speaker. And finally, you need to network. Right. You need to, um, I mean, you could clearly volunteer at a health clinic or uh, to work with a faculty member that's doing research. But I think networking um, will be very important in the future. And you meet people when you go to lectures or you get on a Zoom call um, or you follow a health policy. I think the blogs and the chat rooms are really important. But more importantly, if you did two things, if you accessed um, health affairs, and if you access the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation websites, you'd learn a lot about healthcare. But to keep up, you've got to do it almost every day. You've got to spend 15 minutes a day just checking in. Certainly. Thank you so much, Dr. Shalala, for coming on the show. You're welcome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. You can head to the description of this episode Follow us on all social media so that you don't miss out on any of our content.